start the new year with a self-report. I think it's always good to have a little transparency, a little self-report. And the self-report is this. Um, many of you gave wonderful uh, goodies, like homemade goodies, to, other, to people in the church. And that's, I think that's a great tradition. It's a wonderful tradition. Gordy and Sue gave the Hill family, the Hill family, a loaf of, what is it like a pumpkin, is it like a spice, chocolate chip spice loaf. Okay, now here's my self-report. So they gave one to Alana as well in the office, and one day I came into the office, and Alana is just, she's just eating this, it's like the day it all arrived, and she's eating it. And I gotta say, I, I was, I judged Alana, big time. I was like, come on, Alana, like, have a little self-control, right? So anyway, all that, that's my first self-report. I'm a judgmental person. But then I got home and I was like, you know what? You know what sounds good? A little chocolate chip spice cake. So I like, I sliced a few slices off that, made a little tea, sat down, and I, I put those suckers down. And then I thought, well, I'm almost halfway through the loaf as it is, so I should just keep going. And I just, my self-report is that though the, the Petersons gave a spice a chocolate chip spice loaf to the Hill family. No one else in the Hill family tasted that. So that's my self-report to you all. Just want to be transparent about that. I, don't, I know I'm alone in that kind of eating habit in the holidays, and so you can judge me just like I judged Alana, but um, I've repented of that, and so you should. Okay, all right. Anyway, uh, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Four. We're going to start in verse 46. Rainier read this for us this morning. We return to our study in the Gospel of John. We began this fall. We took a little bit of a break over Advent, and we just looked at the themes of light and life, which really do have their, uh, I think the, the origin of that, that series did come out of the Gospel of John, but we took, we took a break of going through the actual narrative of John, but we're back in that now. And just as we kind of catch up with where we're at in John, a little reminder about what John is. John is a retelling of the life of Jesus. And like all retelling of events, anyone who recounts an event or tells a story does not simply retell a story. It's not just an account of Jesus' life, but more significantly, what John is doing is he's giving us the significance of Jesus's life. And every storyteller, whether they, and this is something that we always need to remember as we hear stories, even as we hear the news, that no one just reports bare facts about anything. There's always an interpretation that needs to happen. And the truth is, every event in our lives needs interpretation. I mean, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is when we, the events of our lives come out and we interpret them in light of what God is doing. That's wisdom. When we, when we misinterpret the events of our lives, that, that's us uh, not being unwise about that. But every storyteller interprets events. And the life of Jesus, the life of Jesus is not a self-interpreting event. That even if people were to walk by Jesus on the cross, we've talked about this before, that Jesus on the cross is not a self-interpreting event. Nobody, not everybody who walks by would say, oh, the Son of God sent by, sent by the Father to die for the sins of the world. That's not what everybody thought when they passed the cross. Some people thought, oh, a, a, a murderer, or oh, an insurrectionist. 
that maybe that's justice, maybe that's injustice, whatever it was. But there's a need to interpret the events of our lives just like the events of Jesus' life. John is going to take up, as he writes these down and as he remembers this, the most significant thing that he's going to do is he is going to offer not just what happened, but what it meant. And more particularly, what it means to us today and to his original readers. So he tells the story as an eyewitness, and he offers his insights about who Jesus was and what God is doing in Jesus. A couple of little interesting things about the Gospel of John. We've talked about these before, but if this is your first time with us, a few things about the Gospel of John as a Gospel. There are four Gospels in your New Testament. It starts with Matthew, and then Mark, and then Luke, and then John. And all three of the first Gospels, the first three Gospels, are all very similar. They're called the Synoptic Gospels. But John is unique. 90% of John is unique. While the first three Gospels share a lot of information in common, the Gospel of John is unique. John recounts events that the other Gospels do not. And it seems as the the way I read the Gospel of John is that John is intentionally a supplemental gospel. John knows that the other gospel writers have written that there's other traditions about Jesus, but John wants to supplement those things. So John, in a lot of ways, if you look at the three synoptic gospels and John, it's a complete account. The best way that this happens is you don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 20, he says, he says this, now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So John intentionally says, this is, I'm not giving an exhaustive account of everything that Jesus did. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's so great at the end. Not every book in the Bible gives us such a great purpose statement, but John does that at the end. And it's so great that he says, look, Jesus is the Messiah, the eternal word, the, um, uh, made human and living among his people. And he says, believe that. And by believing, you may enter into the fullness of life, eternal life, Jesus' sort of life, life in his name. So John doesn't give us an exhaustive account of the miracles of Jesus. As a matter of fact, John, believe it or not, is pretty sparse on the miracles. If you compare John with the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, they record, any any guesses about how many miracles in the the synoptic Gospels of Matthew and Luke? Okay, it's silent. So, Happy New Year, everybody. All right. Three. Do we have more than three? Yes, okay, 20. Matthew and Luke record 20 miracles. Okay, Mark, did somebody get it back there? You're just too quiet? Come on, Larry, you're sandbagging me. Okay, that's right, okay. Mark records 18 miracles. John, thank you, I appreciate it. See, audience participation is great. John, on the other hand, seven. So John is light on the miracles. He's light on the signs. Actually, if you include the resurrection of Jesus, that's eight. But John picks eight or seven 
because he believes that these are specific. The number seven is a number of completion. And so John is saying, if you know these seven, you know enough to know the fullness of who Jesus is. Okay, so this idea, and here are, here are the seven, okay, a little roll call on the miracles. We've already done one. What's the first one? Water to wine. Water to wine, that's in chapter two. Today, the healing of the official son is two. John won't even let us forget it. He's like, this is the second sign. He's like numbering them as they go. The third one we're going to hit uh, next week, the, the healing of the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. Then the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water. The blind man being healed on the Sabbath. And then um, really the culmination of the seventh sign is the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus. And then ultimately the second half of the book, one sign in the second half of the book, and that is the resurrection. So we've already covered the water to wine sign. And John wants his readers to recall that we are on this journey of seven signs. Look in verse 46. So he came again. This is after the woman at the well. He has this encounter with the woman at the well. And he's in Samaria, and he's on his way from Judea through Samaria and up north now into Galilee. And it says he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he made water to wine, just in case you were keeping score at home, right? Where he made water to wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So Jesus has come into this region of Galilee in the north, and he goes to this small town, Cana, which is only about seven miles away from his hometown of Nazareth but about 12 miles away from the Sea of Galilee, okay? And you got to go through some hills to get, the Sea of Galilee is below sea level. It's actually a lake. It's below sea level, but Cana is above sea level. So if you're going to go, you got to go up to Cana, and then if you want to go back down to the sea to Capernaum, you got to go back down to that. And it says this, at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. All right couple things about this. So th- this, this, this story in here, it sa- there's actually a number of uh, accounts that, are, that sound a lot like it in the other Gospels. They're the healing of the centurion servant, um, th- where uh, he comes and asks, and he kind of heals from a distance. And then the, the woman who asked for the healing of her daughter, uh, the Syrophoenician woman, it sounds a lot like this. But this is a different account, and it says that this is an official if you're reading the ESV, it says that it is an official. If you're reading from the NIV, it says this is a royal official. The word here is a, a basilikos, which is essentially the idea that someone who serves a royal family. So this is not a Gentile. The only person who was royalty in that area was the son of Herod the Great, which was Herod the Tetrarch. He ruled that area, and so this person, whoever this is, this basilikos, he serves probably Herod Antipas, this Jewish client ruler of the area. And the man was likely some kind of official in the court of this Jewish ruler, this Jewish king, Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas. Now, here's a, here, one interesting thing is that this, this Herod, this, so there's one, big, there's one big Herod, Herod the Great, and if you go to Israel, you can see all the things that Herod the Great built. Herod the Great was not a great man. He was a great builder, and he was kind of, a, he was, well, he was insane, um, and he killed a lot of people, um, and then he had, he actually, he had a number of sons, but he killed about half of them, all right? I mean, he's a bad guy, but one of them who actually survives is this, this Herod, and he gained some power about him, and one of the interesting things is that when we read in the beginning of John 
that when Jesus comes, it says, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Do you remember that in John chapter 1? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And what, what John is talking about is kind of the, 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 kind of the elite Jewish response to Jesus. That the elite Jewish response to Jesus is overwhelmingly negative. And in this case, what we have, we have this really interesting account where we have an official from the, really the royal household of, of Herod the Tetrarch, and he is coming to Jesus to ask Jesus to do something on his behalf. I think what else is interesting, one other thing, and again, no extra charge for this. Um, in Luke chapter 8, in Luke chapter 8, there's a, re- there's a record that there's a little pause in the narrative where it talks about Jesus' disciples are, are going about the countryside and they're doing all this work. And it says that there are also a number of women who follow him. Mary Magdalene is named among them, and it says, and many others. But there's one woman that's named in this group, and her name is Joanna. And Joanna is said to be the wife of Cusa, who is a steward of Herod the Tetrarch. So whether or not this one thing we know is that the gospel makes its inroads into that royal household. We don't, but now, now here we have a person from that household that's going to Jesus. We don't know if this, this may have been Cusa, and it would, make, it would be interesting. Why does Joanna end up following Jesus? Maybe her son is healed. Maybe this is the son that's healed. We don't know. But it does, it does make us think like, okay, there's, a, there's, there's things going on here. There's some power dynamics going on. We have a, this is an elite official of a royal household that's used to telling people what to do and where to go, coming to Jesus, and asking him to go do something for him. And so it's, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting account and a little puzzling But here's what we find is that hearing that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, Jesus' reputation had grown. He had a reputation for healing, for miracles. And so the official, you would expect the official maybe to send an entourage or a delegation or some servants to make that 12-mile uphill trip to Cana. But what we find is that the man himself goes. So, what, I guess the question that we want to ask is like, what do we think about this man? Because Jesus is going to have, Jesus is going to have something to say to him. And it's not awesome. I mean, it's not awesome at first, and then it's awesome later. But what are we, what's going on with this account? So the, he comes and he gives a request. Uh, uh, he says, sorry, verse 47. He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. It says that he was about to die. Now, we don't know what illness he had later on. It talks about a fever leaving him. And so uh, he was sick. He was suffering from some kind of illness. It involved a fever. John records that he's about to die. The father himself travels. He doesn't send a servant. There's some kind of urgency about this. He asks Jesus, maybe more, he implores Jesus, come down before my child dies. And this is where, just for John, one thing we need to understand is that there's, there's some complexity to the story that if we don't kind of slow down and pay attention to, we're going to miss some of this complexity. What's happening here 
is complex. This is not simply an act of faith that the man is doing going to Jesus. Or simply the man wanting his son to get better. It's a request for something more. And there's a, there's a complex array of motives. Look at 48. So the man has come to Jesus and has said bluntly, my son is about to die, come and heal him. And then Jesus, in all of his compassion, says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. I got to tell you, this is a tough one to read. My, my expectation of Jesus is, well, of course, you're a little boy. How can I help? But the very first thing that Jesus says to this guy is he kind of calls him out for some, some like shady motives. Does anybody else feel the, like the, the I, I suppose sometimes we read through these things and we're just like, oh, well, this is Jesus and we're just going to read right through. But let's just stop right there. The guy comes. He's asking Jesus, heal my son, he's sick. And Jesus takes a moment to stop and pause and say, unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. I mean, there, I think there's a little bit of tension there, don't you think? And I think that what we, what we need to understand is that there's, there, whatever this account is, the complexity that's going on, John wants us to kind of enter into this. And it brings us to this question about what is this relationship between signs and faith. And we'll, we'll leave the guy, we'll leave the, the official off to the side for a second. But what is this relationship between signs and faith? Jesus has this reputation of being a miracle worker, a healer. And this royal official recognizes Jesus as a healer. Now, signs, signs, we'll see the word signs. Every, in all the other gospels, it calls, when Jesus heals someone, it calls it a miracle. A dunamis. But here in the Gospel of John, John will call them a sign, a semea. And, and a semea is something, whatever it is, what the idea is that that thing points to something else. So God is going to pour out his power, and that power, whatever that is, is meant to point at something else. And what we, what we need to understand is that there is... An, an, uh, the, the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians will talk about this, that one of the things that the Jewish people crave, that they look for, is they look for evidence of God moving in the world. They look for signs. He says, the Jews look for signs, the Greeks look for wisdom. And then Paul says, I came to preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block. Okay? And so, so they're looking for signs. They're looking for, some, they're looking for the signs. Now the question is, are they looking for are they looking for the sign or are they looking for the God who performs the sign? Are they looking for sheer power or are they looking for the God whose power it is? And this question of when you see a sign or a miracle, there are a host of motivations that can come out of that. The desire to see more, the desire to see power, sheer power, to see power that overwhelms, to see power that can lead people uh, with, without question. What do we do with that? And what Jesus is saying here is that signs, those signs are, are something that God will give, 
what we're looking for is really the object of whatever they're pointing to. And what we're going to see in the Gospel of John is that the signs are always pointing to Jesus. And one of the other things that we also have to, to figure out and we have to note is that Jesus himself is a sign. Jesus himself is a sign. He is a sign pointing back to the Father that the Father has sent his Son. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. Jesus is a sign. So you have this kind of daisy chain of signs follow the chain. Here's a miracle performed by Jesus. Jesus is pointing back to the Father. He wants to glorify the Father. And so we have this, but in this chain, we will oftentimes see that this, this chain will break down, that people will stop at the wrong point on the chain. Here's the miracle. I love the miracle. And Jesus is over here like, like, I'm the miracle. <laughs> Pay attention. Or like people will just stop at Jesus and his power and his authority, and they'll miss the God who sent him. And as we move through the Gospel of John, what we're going to see is there's this really dynamic and complex relationship between faith and signs. When a sign occurs, what is the proper response? And the proper response is to believe. And one of the things we're going to see here is that this man does believe, and we're going to see that belief is a dynamic thing. But the, 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 the relationship between signs, miracles, and faith, the faith that saves, is a complex thing. And John is going to spend some time looking at it, and we're going to actually take, this is not the last time we will talk about this dynamic. But when this man asks, um, I guess there's a couple things to say. Whenever there is a sign in the Gospel of John, there's seven of them, but whenever there is a sign, there is a misunderstanding. Sometimes a misunderstanding comes in the asking. Do you remember Mary with the water to wine? She's like, Jesus, they just ran out of wine, and what does he say to her? He says, what does this have to do with me? It's not my time. My time has not yet come. But he does it anyway. But there's a misunderstanding on the asking side. Later on, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, afterwards, they like want to make him king because, hey, free bread. And there's this, so Jesus withdraws and he goes alone and he hides from them. And he refuses to let them make him king. There's always a misunderstanding. And every time we look at a sign, every time we look at something that Jesus does in the Gospel of John, there's always going to be a misunderstanding. It's like, Jesus did it, but where'd he go? Like, who, who is he? I love the man born blind. They're like, he, they're, it, it's on the Sabbath, they don't understand, and, and uh, they're like, hey, can you point him out to us? And he's like, I don't know, I was blind, right? Like, I can't point him out. I don't know what he looks like. And, that, and that's it's a great irony, but it's the point that John is saying is that we are all people who don't know what Jesus looks like, but we can still believe in him, right? And so we have this dynamic of Every time there's a sign, there's some kind of misunderstanding, whether it's on the asking end or the interpreting end, there's always some confusion around signs. And in this case, we have to think that the man, the royal official who comes to Jesus, has come with something of shady motives. And maybe it's this, that he, he's a man who's used to power, if you lived in a king's household, 
and you had the unlimited resources available to you, if you had the power of swords around you, if you had the power of the purse of the royalty, if you had all of that power, you would expect whenever you showed up that people would, you know, get out of your way, that people would back off, that if you were to say to someone on the street, hey, I need you to do this, that they would jump and they would do that. And so this guy makes, personally makes a trip 12 miles uphill to find this guy, and he says, will you come and heal my son? And Jesus says, no. I'm not going to come. I'll heal your son, but I'm not going to come with you. Jesus will not do it his way. Which is, come on, Jesus. Just Have you ever been there? Like, would you just do it my way? Like, I've got a plan. I got a great plan. I've thought it through. Jesus, this is, bless my plan, right? And maybe that's what he's doing. Maybe that's what this guy is doing. Maybe he's like, bless my plan. Maybe he's just interested in the raw display of power. There are others, there are others in, the, in the book of Acts that they want to buy the bestowing of the Holy Spirit. They're just interested in the power. Perhaps the man is entitled and he thinks he can simply task Jesus with his desires. Perhaps the man comes in the midst of a crowd that is thirsty to see signs. It is interesting because when Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, he doesn't say it in the singular. In English, we only have the word you, unless you live in the South and you have the plural y'all. Or if you live in upstate New York, it's yous. Yous, okay? Proper English does not have the plural. By the way, in, in, in the South, there's actually three forms of the second person plural. It's, um, it's either uh, you, that's singular, or I could just talk about y'all right there in the front, or I could talk about all y'all. And that's, that's, that's that. Okay, so, so Jesus, when he says, unless all y'all will see signs and wonders... All y'all will not believe. So the man comes with a question, and maybe it's just that he's in a, he's in a group of people, he's in a group of, of uh, skeptics or whatever it is, but this man becomes the point in which Jesus is going to make this point about signs and faith. And it is a tough one. It's a tough one for me to read about Jesus. Our askings of Jesus are not, are all, I should say this, our askings of Jesus are always going to be a mixture of motives. I think this is the thing, and don't hear, don't, what I don't want you to hear with this sermon is that, look, next time you go to Jesus, you better have the right motives. Otherwise, Jesus is just, you know, look, you will never ask Jesus out of pure motives for anything. Ever. Ever. It might be better or worse. I mean, let's face it, it could be better or worse. But here's the thing. Whatever the mixture of motives that this man comes with, it's no different than our mixture of motives. Whether we ask, we ask Jesus to work on behalf of our own situation, 
or whether we ask Jesus to work on behalf of someone else's situation. I, we, these are both things that we ought to do as believers. Why? Because we know where God's saving power is. It's not anywhere else. I love Peter later on. He's going to say, where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. It doesn't matter how good my motives are. I can't go anywhere else. I can't go anywhere else. You have the words of eternal life. I can't ask anywhere else. And so I have to ask as I am. I can't simply wait till I have pure motives. Read the Psalms. It's full of a bunch of bad motives. But the, but the idea is that we know where life is. And the only place where we can address our concern is to the one who can do something about it. Our askings of Jesus are always going to be a mixture of motives. But the man eventually asks with the bluntless, bluntness of desperation. Look at 449. Just imagine this coming out of someone's mouth. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. You can imagine that he's already asked, hey, will you come down? Will you come down officially? Like, this is not the language, this is not the language of a court official. This is the language of a desperate father. I mean, the plea, hey, so-and-so sends his, you know, he requests your presence, da-da-da-da-da. This is just the guy showing up, come down before he dies. The man wants Jesus to come with him, and maybe as a royal official, he's used to giving people orders and people obeying those orders. Even though Jesus doesn't right away say, oh yeah, I'll be, I'm happy to help. Like, I, I tend to think of Jesus like, hey, I'm happy to help. Let's see what we can do. Like, that's not his first response. It's like, unless all y'all see signs and wonders, all y'all won't believe. But eventually, Jesus sees beyond the mix of motives, and he doesn't hear the request of a royal official. He hears the request of a father asking on behalf of his son. And he won't do it as he said, as he wants him to do it, but he has a different plan on how this healing is going to happen. Look at 450. The man asks, come down before my child dies, and Jesus says, go. Your son lives. Jesus here has decided to heal from a distance. The conventional way would be to show up, lay hands on, etc., etc., but Jesus is like, go. We're going to do a long distance. I don't know what Jesus did if he it's like a three-pointer, you know, from Cana to Galilee. I don't know. Um, but here's a point. I think what, one thing that John is doing here is Jesus is not at the beck and call of powerful men. He's not even at the beck and call of his own mother. We saw with the, the wedding in Cana of Galilee. He is not at the beck and call of the powerful or the influential. But he will see the plight of a father with a little boy who is sick and will act with compassion. Let me just say this. Whatever motives you come to Jesus with, 
Jesus has the ability to sort through those motives and act on your behalf with compassion. Let me say that again. Because sometimes we, we, we wait to ask. We don't know how to ask. We wait to put all the right words together. And let me just say this. Jesus has the ability to sort through all of your motives and then do what he does, which is act with compassion. He might have something to say to you, like he does with this guy, but he also will act with compassion because that is who Jesus is. I think one interesting thing about this passage, I think, I didn't, I didn't see it the first time I went through it, but after I was starting to look, I, in, when the man first shows up in 446, he's called a basilikos, a royal official. But eventually, John, in his account, stops calling him a royal official. Look in 450. In 450, it says, um, go your way, your son will live. And then it says, the man, anthropos, he's just a man. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and went his way. By the time you get to 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him his son was recovering. He asked the hour. They said the seventh hour, which is about one o'clock. The fever left him. And then what is he called? He's not called a basilikos. He's called a pater, a father. The man, the man starts as a royal official, and the story ends with him as a father with a little boy. And I don't think that, I don't think that that's a coincidence in the account. Because we don't come to Jesus with our, like I don't come to Jesus as Pastor Craig. You don't come as, I, I'm, the, I'm the president of this company. I'm the CFO. Like we don't come to Jesus with our titles. I come just as a guy a man, a father. And even if I come as a pastor, it's as, a, as a, just someone who is on behalf of someone else asking for something, asking on behalf of the church, asking on behalf of a family. We don't come with our titles to Jesus, and by the end of this, he is just the father. He's the, the father who had the boy, and now the father, the royal official comes with a request, but the father believes. A mix of motives to begin as the royal official, but once it's just, he's just a dad with his little boy, it's faith. I love that when we think about this idea of believing. Faith, by the way, the word believe, the verb believe, he believed, and the noun faith, it's the same word in Greek. So when you hear, when, you, when you're reading and it says he believed, it means he faithed. That, you can't say that in English. But he, he has faith. It's belief and faith. Those are the same thing in Greek, okay? So it says, uh, when Jesus says, go, your son will live, what does the man do? He believes. He has faith. What is interesting about this is as he's going home in verse 51, he's going down, his servants meet him. His, they say his son is recovering. The fever left him. He asked what time, the seventh hour. He puts it together. The father knew the hour that w was when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And what does he do again? 
he believes again. And one of the things in the Gospel of John you're going to see is that belief is not just a one-time event. Belief is, belief is a dynamic thing. And there's sometimes a belief that faith ebbs and flows. It, there's, the, the tide kind of goes out and the tide comes in. There are times where we are confident in God, where times where we're anticipating that God will move, and there's other times where it is a struggle to believe. It's a struggle to see that God will move, that there's doubt involved in faith. And I think what we're going to see in John is that there are complex reason, reasons why people around Jesus, sometimes the faith is in the signs, but the goal is that the faith is in Jesus. Faith is an interesting thing in the Gospel of John. There's lots of reasons why people believe. Sometimes they believe because of signs. Sometimes they believe, like with the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says, I, I, I hope that you believe because you saw the signs, but probably you just believe because you ate your fill. So sometimes people believe just because they ate their fill. Sometimes people believe because of the word of Jesus. I think this is interesting too. When the man first believes, he doesn't believe that because he saw the miracle of his son being healed, he only believed because of the word of Jesus. He took Jesus at his word before he ever saw the sign. And so he, he believed then, he saw the sign, he believed again. Sometimes people believe because of signs, sometimes believe, people believe because of the testimony of others, like the Samaritan woman. Sometimes people believe because they see Jesus himself, sometimes because of the Father. Sometimes that faith is solid, and sometimes people hear something difficult and bail. And sometimes people have a hard time believing. I think two reasons why I would say faith is a dynamic thing and there are times, I think it's normative in the Christian life where there are times where you feel strong in your faith, you really trust that God is going to do something and then there are other times in a life of faith where we doubt, where we don't know, where we're crying out, God, where are you? And there's, there's really two reasons why I would, I would say that in this case um, and in this case it's because of um, really, it's because of Thomas and Peter in the Gospel of John. They're both great examples of this. They follow Jesus, and they're strong at certain points. But then there's times where Thomas is like, in the, in the Gospel of John, he's like, I'm not going to believe unless I put my fingers in the holes in his hands. You guys remember that story? Right? And you're like, Thomas, like, what's up, Thomas? Like, and if we were in the same spot, we might have had the same thing. Like, I want to put my hand in his side and my fingers in the holes I, and that's what I need to do to believe. And then Jesus shows up, and he's like, my Lord and my God. Faith can falter. Peter's a good example of that. What is the line between ultimate faltering like a Judas and a falling away like Peter? I don't know. Uh, to be honest, I don't know. The truth is, faith is a dynamic experience of trust in God. You read the Psalms. We've already talked about the Psalms over and over and over. They are a great example of what a life of faith looks like. There are times where we're confident and we're marching. We, we know like the, uh, uh, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand the path of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. We're marching, right? He's like a tree planted by water. And then there's other times where it's like, where'd you go, God? I'm surrounded by enemies. I have anxiety, I'm surrounded by dread, 
where'd you go? I have no friends. Like, that's the Psalms. These, this is the work of faith. And if there's anything that we find that we, that we recognize in the Gospel of John is that faith is a dynamic experience. And what... I want us to be a church that anticipates that God is going to move and confidently moves out trusting that God is at work in our community. A strong trust in God's goodness and his compassion. I want that deep in us. But I also want to be a church that does not despise or shame those who are having a harder time with faith. That's part of our faith as well, that if someone has left the table of faith, we hold a spot for them. We hold their faith for them. Whatever their motives are, that we live in a community where, look, there's all kinds of motives that are going on, but we recognize that we want to be a people who have strong faith, but we also don't want to despise those who have a faltering faith or who have a struggle with faith, that we could be a community that gathers round, that holds their spot for them around the table. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We actually have an opportunity this morning to begin our year around the table. And it's a wonderful opportunity as we start this year to think about this time around the table, to think about faith. You know, if you, were, if you had any experience like I did over the holiday season, we had plenty of great meals around and some great conversations around the table. I love the table because it's a place where there's just, there's conversation, there's play, there's kind of banter back and forth. It's a great time. And I think that as we come to the table that Jesus invites us to, I think there's a part of us that we need to recognize that Jesus wants to have that kind of table relationship with us. A conversation, a little banter back and forth. Maybe even a little challenge. Maybe that he's just holding our spot for us while we struggle. Because Jesus is like that. He doesn't dismiss the official. He has something to say, but he's also like, look, I don't see you as an official, I see you as a father. I see you as a man. And I think what Jesus would say to you this morning, I hope you, you understand this, that he's not looking at your title He's just looking at you as a person, a man, a woman, a son or a daughter, a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa, whatever it is. And as we come, I, this is what I want to urge you to do this morning as we go into the new year. As we think about this kind of conversation around the table, like what do you want to say to Jesus as we start this next year? Like what do you want to say to him? Maybe, there, maybe you have something to say to him and you've had it on your mind. Maybe it's a request. Maybe it's just you want to say something to him. Like the table's a great place to do that. Or maybe you're just curious like, hey Jesus, do you have something to say to me? This is totally an appropriate place to ask. Jesus, do you have something to say to me as we go into this year? Is there something that, that you want me to take up or put down? Is there something that you... Or is there just something you want me to know? And maybe Jesus is just wanting, like, hey, look, I just want you to know how much you're loved. I don't know what Jesus has to say. 
I would imagine there's all kinds of things that Jesus would want to say to everyone in here. But as we come, what we'll do is, as the music plays, you can come down and, and grab the elements. There's two cups. There's, a, there's bread on the bottom, juice on the top. Take both. And then just go back to your seat, and we'll just have some time of reflection, of just time around the table with Jesus alone. And then after we have some time just to ask him those questions or maybe to say whatever you need to say to him, then as a, as a, as a family, I'll lead us all together and we'll, we'll, t- we'll participate all together. So just hold the elements as you reflect and then we'll come back together to do it all together. Let me pray for us and then anticipate that Jesus is going to meet us at the table. Jesus, we have to admit, we don't always get you. You do things not the way we do them or even the way we want them to be done. But we have come to follow you, to get behind you, not to lead you. We've come to follow behind you, to learn from you. So, Jesus, if there is anything that you, would, that you need to say to us, to me, to anyone here, we, we invite you. We totally invite you. We never want you on the outside. We, we understand that you have held this table for us. You've made this table for us. And then, Father, I just pray that, that our people here, if they have something to ask or to say, that they would just pour out their hearts to you. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done on our behalf already. But we recognize that you still love us. You love us deeply. So let's come and take the elements back.